0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Inside Writing Podcast presented by Gotham Writers. I'm your host, Josh Sippy. As a reminder, all of these episodes are recorded live Wednesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern time on Zoom. You can join us there, bring your questions, uh, sign up for free on the Gotham Writers website, and enjoy the show. Today, we're dipping back into the old form of inside writing with two guests. Uh, They're both here to talk about the law side of publishing. So our first guest, Joseph Perry, is an attorney who counsels clients in the publishing and music industries and the founder of the literary agency Perry Literary Incorporated. As an agent, he represents best-selling cookbook authors, athletes, musicians, journalists, influencers, academics, and more. Hello, Joe. Hi, Josh. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it absolutely and our second guest uh, Jennifer Chen Tran is a literary agent at Bradford literary agency and a publishing attorney as an attorney she has represented visual artists entrepreneurs writers and other individuals in the creative space as an agent she represents graphic novels in middle grade and young adult as well as adult fiction and nonfiction including cookbook including cooking lifestyle health parenting and business hello Jen
1: hi thanks for having us
0: absolutely thank you for, thank you both for being here so I want to start with the, the bare bones of what publishing law looks like. So let's start, uh, Jim, we'll start with you in a sentence or two. Can you tell me what you do on the legal side of publishing?
1: Absolutely. So, um, you know, I've been in the publishing world for a while now. Um, over a decade and I basically work with authors and other creative types to protect their rights under copyright law. So that can take many forms that might be involving publication review in terms of the publishing contract, negotiating the terms of the publishing contract, um, especially for writers or individuals that don't have representation. Um, I've also gotten rights re- rights reversions for authors before where they want their rights reverted from a previously published book. Um, And we've we've done libel and uh, defamation review as well. So there's there's a lot of different areas that a publishing attorney can work on. Uh, but the big picture is we're here to protect the author's rights.
0: Mm-hmm. Joe, do you have anything to add to that as far as what you do? So I do a lot of similar things. So
2: I uh, review, draft, negotiate all types of publishing agreements, from agent agreements, editorial services agreements, to from to your traditional publishing agreement, option agreements. Attachment agreements I'm trying to think ghost well, ghostwriting collaboration, what you name it, I've 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 done it. Uh writes for versions, I've helped register copyrights. And Jen and I, we actually just started um, helping authors start their own publishing companies. So that's uh, something new that we've done.
0: Awesome. Yeah, and you both brought up some good points there that I want to get back to, but I want to I wanna get into sort of Joe. Well, I, I start with you on this. When should a writer start first start thinking about protecting their work? Like at what point in the creative stages? <laughs>
2: So technically, as soon as you save your work to Microsoft Word, it already is protected. Uh, So that's under copyright law. So I get this question all the time. Uh, So the next step would be to register your work. And it it all depends on what you want to do for that. Uh, If you're traditionally published, a lot of times the publisher will register the copyright for you. Um, you would want to make sure you to ask to have that registered in your name. But if you're self-publishing it, that's you know that's a different story. Then it, likely the, the onus would be on you to um, register it. But technically speaking, it's already protected. The reason why you want to register is that you can't file a lawsuit in federal court for copyright infringement and you can't get statutory damages. So that's why they say um, register early so uh, you don't fall into that trap where Uh, the infringement happens and then, you know, you're not eligible for the uh, uh, statutory damage because they're a lot, they're like tens of thousands of dollars, 200s of thousands of dollars. Yeah. Depending on what it is.
0: Dan do you have anything to add to that as far as when, when writers should start thinking about protection?
1: Yeah, it's a really great question. And I think unfortunately a lot of writers are under the illusion that they need to have like the copyright symbol on their manuscript in order for it to be protected. Mm -hmm. And that's not true as Joe said, as soon as it's um, in a fixed tangible form, it's technically protected under copyright law and you don't need that little symbol. I mean, you can always put it there. There's no harm in doing that that puts people on notice, but technically it's already protected under copyright law.
0: So this is a question that we get at Gotham quite often as well, which is when I go into a workshop and I'm workshopping my, my work is my stuff protected. Like what's what's protecting me from other people stealing what I've written. So Jen, What I'm gathering is it already is, right?
1: It is. It is already protected. Um, Where it gets a little tricky is that copyright law does not protect ideas, just the expression of ideas. So, you know, a lot of times when you're workshopping, people might be like, oh, that was my idea. But, you know, um, that's not actionable under copyright law. It's the expression of those ideas. So, you know, I think a lot of people, do you want to hold their manuscripts close to their chest because they're paranoid that other people might steal their ideas but ideas are not copyrightable.
0: And Joe, is that a situation you deal with often with, with like plagiarism or people's work being stolen, that kind of stuff?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's happened from time to time uh, where people think that, oh, you know, well, well, let me take a step back. It's, Some people will claim that you know plagiarism and copyright are two different things. So for plagiarism, not so much these days. Sometimes that happens, but it's mainly copyright infringement, or it's mainly basically along the same lines of what Janet said. Someone stole my idea. And that's really nine times out of 10, that's what it really comes down to. Because in that situation, if you're in a workshop, how it would work is you would have to to prove copyright infringement, you would have to prove access. So that person would have to have a a copy of your work. And then, then you would have to prove substantial similarity. Uh, that, you know, the that person's work basically copied from you, which it, you know, on paper may seem easy enough because it's, uh, you're in a workshop, but, you know, there's a lot of time and effort that goes into just filing a copyright infringement lawsuit anyway. So it's like, it's, you need, you know, a $75,000 threshold to get into federal court anyway. So it's, I'm just saying that just thinking down the line in case this, you know, is happening to any of your authors, you know, it's, it's, t- it's expensive, takes a ton of time. So there are... There's some other things that you might want to think about in terms of, you know, mitigating that. I mean, the other question, I guess the follow-up question I get to that is, well, can I, you know, uh, draft an NDA? Well, sure you can, but, you know, you know, try to read the room a little bit. What's the you know the type of group that you're in, in a sense, you know, like, you know, are they going to really want you in there if you're, you're going to sign an NDA? And I get the same question um, uh, at, from being an agent, uh, you know, do I need to, sign uh, uh, an NDA to give to editors. And that's just not how everything goes. I think there's just an implicit trust with editors. Um, I know that's a a totally different realm, but these things are all interrelated. And uh, uh, I get that particular question a lot on on, on the agency
0: side. Mm Do you have anything to add to that?
1: No, I think uh, Joe pretty much covered it, but basically, you know, there are non-disclosure agreements. Are they common in publishing? Not always. Not always. I did have a situation on the literary agenting side where my client is working with Disney, and and that's all I can say about it because uh, I had to sign a non-disclosure agreement for that. So there are certain projects, especially along the lines of work for hire, that might require a non-disclosure, but for the most part, we don't use them that often.
2: Mm-hmm. so like for instance i did uh, not sorry to jump in but it just reminded me i'm i have a a project that's potentially getting optioned as well and i made the um the production company sign an nda to just read the proposal um just because i've just heard some you know uh you know crazy stories in the film industry so just to protect her um so that was a situation where i i um, insisted that an nda would be uh, uh signed and that's also particularly to protect work because the work hasn't been published yet in part of the chapters, even though they'll be edited, the content is there. And, you know, I don't want to get out anything to get leaked, et cetera, et cetera.
0: So I do want to pull on a question from the audience real quick, because it's about something, Joe, that you said earlier. Uh, they, they wanted a little clarification on what you meant by registering copyrights early to be eligible for statutory damages. What, what sure. do you mean by that? Sure. So the minute you get published, so the let me take a step back. There are
2: certain things that you can do. It depends on what you wanna do. So if you're, I'm just gonna use traditional publishing. So if you're uh, getting published by, you know, Big Five, Indie, University Press, they're going to register your copyright. Um, and you're gonna see in your clock, in your contract that's usually within a three month window. Um, so they want to do that in order because the process time to get it registered takes time. It could take weeks, it could take months. So you want to register it as early as possible, just in case there is, you know, potential copyright infringement. and the reason why you want to register it, like I said before, is that you, you're not eligible to file a lawsuit for copyright infringement and you're not eligible for statutory damages. So to say what statutory damages are, they're particular damages under the Copyright Act, they can range from anywhere from $30,000 to $150,000 if your infringement is willful. So if you bring a copyright infringement lawsuit, and you can have a couple counts of copyright infringement, and that can get over that $75,000 threshold. Let's just say you're dealing with $100,000 for it. So you're able to get that. But if you don't register it, say you say your book publishes right now, September 1, 2021, uh, but you don't register it until September 1, 2022, but the infringement happened six months ago. You're not under the Copyright Act. You're not going to be eligible for those damages. You still may get a certain amount, but you're not going to be eligible for those big tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of dollars of damage. I don't know if that um, uh, answers the question, but uh, uh, I know it's a long-winded answer, but you know, everything in copyright law is complex, unfortunately.
0: <laughs> so I, I want to talk a bit about what an agent's responsibility is with a writer. Uh, Jen, are all agents technically publishing? Or like, do they have to have... A, a, you know, knowledge of publishing law or do, does every agency have their designated lawyer? Or what? Where do writers turn to if they need this sort of help? Does their agent serve as that person?
1: So um, I actually have a clause in my agency agreement where I make it very clear that if I sign someone on the agenting side, I am not their attorney. <laughs> um, you know, if somebody wants to hire me, a non-client wants to hire me um, for publishing consulting, that's definitely a discussion that we can have. But basically, um, literary agents don't need to have a legal background. They don't need to be attorneys. A lot of them happen to be attorneys. I can think of a handful that used to be corporate attorneys and then decided to make a change. Um, And go into agenting. So it is extremely helpful, I think, to have a legal background, but it's not a prerequisite um, for being an agent. I think more important is to have somebody that has the depth of knowledge in terms of publishing contracts, because they are very specific to publishing. Um, And there are certain terms that, you know, an average attorney they wouldn't know what to do with um, just because they haven't come across it, like terms of art, um, how royalties work. So I always say to potential writers that if you're having an attorney vet your publishing contract, make sure it's actually an attorney that has public, um, practice publishing law and, and specializes in publishing law. Um, but yeah, agents, we wear a lot of different hats. And one of the hats that we do wear is, is making sure that our authors are protected um, as much as possible. Um, When I write nonfiction proposals, I always, of course, it's an unspoken rule that it's confidential and not for distribution outside the publishing house. Um, Joe, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I
2: actually, similarly, I have um, a provision in my agency uh, contract that says I'm only going to be your agent. I cannot be your attorney. And also for ethical reasons, like because I have an agency and I'm a solo practitioner, I can't crisscross both uh, 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 businesses. So you know, you don't have to have, you know, legal knowledge to be an agent. There are plenty who are incredibly successful. They know the market. They know what sells. And, you know, a publishing agreement after a while, kinds it, it tends to be sort of the same thing. Maybe there's some things that um, are different depending on, you know, current litigation. But generally speaking, it is uh, uh, similar. But at the same time, there are many times when I'm going over an agreement and I think to myself, I wouldn't know what to do. Uh, <laughs> if I didn't have a law degree or no certain, uh, you know, provision even outside of publishing, or just even knowing what like, a, you know, severability clause in a publishing contract is, which is in literally every single contract, um, that you'll come across. But just like knowing those little things that like, you know, that, I just feel that's where the value comes in of having a legal background. And then not only that to have the publishing you know, contract knowledge, but also when you're looking at a project to see, like, oh, you may want to, you know, think about changing the wording here or there for defamation purposes for, you know, you may be violating a right of privacy. So it's not just the publishing contracts, um, but it really helps having a publishing attorney because they know the industry and they know that they may know things that someone who isn't uh, an, an attorney
0: knows about. I find that fascinating because in my, in my, granted, limited knowledge of publishing law, I had assumed that if you get an agent who's also an attorney, well, hey, you get two for the price of one. So it doesn't mm. work that way.
2: mm mm-hmm. Right. I was th- that, That's how I run it. Yeah. So I don't know if, you know, if, uh, I know like the bigger agencies like the, you know, like ICMs and uh, uh, Endeavor CAs, they have their own business affairs department. So they, they have their own attorneys and I know agencies that have them as well. So um, they have someone in house, but it gets more difficult for people who are smaller like myself, where, um, you know, I just, I've had to tell people I can't take you on because, you know, uh, you're, I took you on as, as an attorney, so I, I can't take you on as an agent or vice versa.
0: So Jen, if you have a client who you're repping as an agent who gets into some legal trouble or they have something they need to do, what do you do? Do you just advise them who they could go to for help?
1: Yeah, so typically what I do is I kind of take a step back and look at the situation. I might give them some advice with the understanding that this is just my professional advice, not necessarily as an attorney. Um, But yeah, if if it involves litigation or there's any threat of litigation, I typically refer it out to another attorney that I trust um, and we pretty much all know each other. I feel like because publishing is a pretty small world, and there's only a handful of attorneys that really practice um, publishing law. But yeah, I mean, I think it's really important to look at the big picture um, and really ask yourself if it's something worth pursuing because litigation can be extremely costly, and oftentimes um, mm-hmm. settlement is a better better answer. So um, I do refer out uh, if if it's a situation that warrants that. Mm-hmm.
0: So I want to talk about the publishing contract because this is such a big topic. So I'm I'm going to start with just a more general question of what considerations go into preparing a a contract and what your role is in doing that. So, Joe, let's start with you Mm -hmm. on this one.
2: Sure. So it all depends on the type of contract. So if it's from a publishing house, the agent doesn't prepare it. So the publishing house has their standard contract, and then you go in and and you negotiate it. The opposite happens if, you know, I'm an agent and I send it out to my client. So I'll be preparing an agent, agency client, uh, agency contract, excuse me. Um, yeah, same thing goes for, for uh, other types of things like ghostwriting agreements, collaboration agreements, we'll prepare those as well. So is there a specific one that you'd like me to talk about in terms of what goes into? Um...
0: I guess just in terms of traditional publishing, mm-hmm. when you're signing a book mm-hmm. deal from a publisher, mm-hmm. what goes into those kinds of contracts? Sure. So
2: uh, I, I I don't want to speak for any publisher, but uh, I think, you know, if I could put that hat on <laughs> uh, what they're looking at is trying to get, you know, as many rights as possible, to be honest with you, when you look at the contracts, they're very publishing publisher friendly. Um, I think they're going to try to uh, see what they can get uh, uh out of you for less money and royalties, and that's why you have the agents to say, well, no, what you have here isn't going to fly. Um, the uh, They're going to try to look at the, like they have an indemnification clause in there, and that usually is ironclad. That's actually one provision that is just like usually non-negotiable. There may be some aspects of it that are, but um Generally speaking, uh, you know, most agents I would I would believe just don't have much success in that. Um, same thing for sub-rights. You know, they're, they're gonna want world rights. Uh, uh, that's usually the standard that I've seen, depending on if, if it's a smaller publisher, they may say, hey, we don't have the reach to get to an international publisher. So they may say, oh, we'll just take, uh, you know, North American rights or US rights. But generally speaking, the bigger publishers, they, they want as much as they can. Uh, and,
0: you know, that's that's what you're going up against. <laughs> Ben, do you have anything to add to that? I have a follow-up to this as well, but I wanna give you a chance if there's something else you wanna yeah, say. thank
1: you. Um, yeah, I think Joe pretty much gave sort of the lay of the land. Um, as an agent, we pretty much negotiate the publishing contract with the publisher. And I always tell writers, I know sometimes it's a long time coming and you get super excited when you get that contract. And by the way, it takes time to get that contract from when, when you get a deal. Sometimes it can take months to even get the contract. So I just want people to understand the sort of the timeline in traditional publishing is a little bit more prolonged, um, but basically, yeah, we're we're negotiators, we're problem solvers. That's what we do as agents. And you know, uh, my boss has been in the business for gosh, like twenty one years now. So we have a lot of contracts in our database that we can reference. Um, and I will say, like the extremely big agencies, they they have clout, they have negotiation power. Um, sometimes they they have a little bit more leverage because they have some superstar clients, for instance. Um, So I do think that it's really important to make sure you align yourself with people that have been in the industry for a while. That's not to say younger agents shouldn't have a chance. I always tell writers, like, if you want someone really going to bat for you, be open to newer agents. They're really hungry. um, And they really want to work hard on behalf of their clients. So I'm kind of getting off on a tangent. But basically, everything in the contract is negotiable, never accepted at face value. Um, There are certain provisions, like Joe said, that are much harder to negotiate, like warranties and indemnification. Like nine times out of 10, the publisher will say no to any change you want to make there. Um, But in general, everything is negotiable.
0: So that was actually the exact words of my follow-up, which is how much is negotiable. But I did have a a secondary question to that. And Jen, I'll start with you. When, When should a writer know when to say that's not good. That's not enough. Like at what point, cause like you said, most authors are very excited. They have a contract. Of course they just want to sign it. But when, when do they step up and say, this isn't enough. We have to do something about this.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it varies for the individual, but in general, like I always ask for an escalator clause for my royalties. So, you know, um, if a certain amount of quantities are sold, the the writer should be incentivized to sell more copies, right? So they should also get more royalties as the quantity goes up. And I think I've only had a few situations where the publisher outright, very few, outright refused um, an escalator clause. Another thing is there's often what's called a rights grab. So that's when the publisher tries to grab all the rights in the beginning and say, I want world rights, I want all languages. Um, And, you know, a lot of times, A writer doesn't know what to do. They're like, oh, they want everything. Like, do I give them everything? Do I hold back? And so, you know, if you work with an agency that has a foreign rights agent, um, there's that conversation with that foreign rights agent. Does this book have potential to sell overseas? Yes or no? If it does, then a good agent will try to retain, um, let's say the, the book has potential to publish really well in France they'll do a carve out um, for that territory and language. So I think it's really, really important to kind of check in with your gut too, and your intuition. If something feels icky, definitely get someone who who is seasoned and experienced to help you out. Mm
0: -hmm. Do you have anything to add to that?
2: Yeah, so I've done a lot uh, recently on the the law side, um, a lot of hybrid publishers, and it's totally different than traditional publishing in terms of their contracts where, you know, for those who aren't familiar, uh, you basically pay a publisher to publish your book. Um, and quite frankly, sometimes that, you know, it's thousands upon thousands of dollars. And, uh, a lot of times, you know, authors aren't going to be happy with it. And, you know, there are just certain things that you want to make sure to negotiate for, to make sure you can even get a refund. Like what happens, you know, if you're not happy with their services, um, you know, things of that nature, but, uh, just going back to, to what Jen said, you know, it really, and I, I agree, it depends on your book. Um, I think what the strategy you want to uh, utilize, or at least one of the strategies, is what works for you. Where do you want to sell your book? You know, do you, you know, of course, everyone's always going to say, I want it to be the most popular book. I want it to be a bestseller, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, that's not going to be every book. So, you know, what's going to work for you? Are you okay with just selling in the U.S.? Um, do you want your agent to have, uh, you know, to go, you know, you know, work with a foreign agent, a foreign rights agent? Uh, to, to publish it elsewhere. Um, You know, are you okay with, you know, non-escalation clauses like Jen was just saying, or do, is that something um, that that you want? I think, you know, what you should do is sort of look at like, you know, your contract and don't be afraid to state your own value because they clearly want to publish you, you know, unless it's, you know, a vanity press, but they, they've been, so to even get to that point, you've had the editorial, meeting, marketing, publicity, and sales, they're all on board and they want to publish this. So even though you may not have an agent from like, you know, one of the big four, um before agencies that doesn't mean that you still can't look at the value of what you bring to the table um and don't be afraid to negotiate that's it it always it always especially for the, the hybrid publisher that i just came across um recently like the authors literally just wanted to sign it i'm like no if you sign this like it's terrible like you're assigning your rights it's you're going it's like an eight-year contract <laughs> you're never you're not gonna be able to get out of it for a long time so don't be afraid to negotiate they expect you to negotiate and they know that you're going to come back and say i need more money I need more royalties that people uh, uh, expect that. So
1: don't be afraid to do that. Yeah, and I, I always advise writers, like, always ask for more money up front because that's when you have negotiation power because you could technically walk away, right? <clears throat> so I think it's really important to, to have an agent, for instance, represent your interests because our job is to represent the writer's best interest. We only do well if our client does well. Um, and we have a fiduciary duty as literary agents, you know. So, you know, ask for more money up front and also pay attention to the back-end royalties. It's really, really important.
0: Mm-hmm. And that more or less answered my next follow-up, which was how how much does a writer need to know about what's in the contract and how much can they just trust their agent to do the right thing? So Jen, do you want to address that a little bit more?
1: Yeah, um, typically I actually show my red line to my clients. I actually tell them exactly what I'm changing and I want to make sure they're on board with it before I send it back to the contracts department. And I do get a lot of questions from them because, you know, typically an author would be like, this is the first contract and I don't understand this term. Can you explain it to me? So I think our job as agents is really to break down the contract in plain language, like what exactly Um, of certain provision means, so it's really important for me at least to keep in communication with my clients and be transparent about the process because I feel like so much of publishing happens behind closed doors, so I try to lift the curtain a little bit and show them how the sausage is made, so to speak, (laughs) Um, but basically, yeah, I mean, I I think it's really important that writers also educate themselves as much as possible, so good on everyone that showed up today, nice job, (laughs) Um, you know, learn about publishing law, learn about copyright, It doesn't hurt to to learn as much as possible.
0: Mm Do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, so yeah, I
2: sort of do the same thing. I I call my clients. I will literally go through every single provision and say, "Here's in plain language, plain English." Here's what they're they're talking about here. Um, That's my goal as an agent and an attorney. My goal is to have you know more about publishing than when
0: you know before you
2: you know contacted me. Um, and then, sorry, what was the, the, the second part of the question? I had, I had something in mind, but I forget what I was going to
0: say. I think it was how much a writer needs to know and how much they can just trust their agent to. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, I think,
2: I think look at your agent is, is, are they communicating with you? Are they just signing the agreement? I mean, obviously that would be a huge red flag, <laughs> uh, but you know, are they answering your questions? Um, you know, uh, are they going to bat for you? Um, and I think and you'll know that you'll 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 know because they're gonna come back to you and say, hey, we have this offer, this offer, this offer, I'm gonna negotiate it this way and that way. Um, and then oh, the, the other thing I wanted to say was um in terms of you know understanding copyright law. So there are a lot of different resources. Go on copyright.gov, they have circulars. Um, they're like numbered into like, I think like the thousands, I I don't call me on that. I I don't remember, but it'll literally be about, you know, here's one on grant of rights. Here's one on work for hires, et cetera, et cetera. So it gives, it breaks it down into very plain English for a lot of people. So that's just one uh, free resource that you can utilize. Mm -hmm.
0: So I want to get into some audience questions. because we have a lot of really good questions coming in and some big questions. So I want to make sure we save time for those. So first off, I want to ask both of you about how you got into publishing law. Uh, this now this is a complex question, so I'm going to ask a couple questions mm-hmm. at once. But if you need a refresher, just let me know. So, a How did you get into publishing law? Are you also writers? Uh, would you recommend lawyers? Would you recommend that lawyers who are writers pursue publishing law? And is it more competitive than other forms of entertainment law? So, <laughs> pick and choose there if you want to. If you want to refresh on which questions were in there, uh-huh. let me know. But Joe, let's start with you on sure. This one.
2: Sure. So I have like a pretty circuitous route to getting into publishing law. So I uh actually wanted to be an editor out of you know uh, college and, and grad school like every other english major and i actually met my wife at the nyu summer publishing institute it was like the joke that i felt i was on the bachelor where i walked in. i didn't know how skewed the industry was in terms of males and females i was like one of seven guys and i was like oh my gosh like <laughs> and uh we ended up you know uh, uh dating and you know we're married we have, we, we have a son i feel like uh, you know i gave the the, the, the road that that's what i always like to joke about um but during that um uh, uh, course, I saw two panels, one on agents and one on lawyers. And I never thought to even, you know, to, to do that. And I thought, oh, that seems like what I want to do. Um, I like that I would get to go to bat for a lawyer or excuse me, for authors. Um, I'd have some uh, uh, editorial uh, work to do. So to sort of use my creative side. So it seemed like it was utilizing a lot of different things that I, I, I was interested in. So uh, I ended up going to law school having I had all my internships at uh, publishing houses except for um, my first one which I just cold called and I'm still amazed that I got I got it up for way morris at that time so they just like and it ended up being the, the publishing attorney that just so happened to be They're like oh this is fantastic so it confirmed that I wanted to do it. Uh, and then I ended up interning at um, Rodeo, Columbia University Press, Hachette. I think with publishing law, to get into the other part of the question of how competitive it is, it, I feel like the, there are a lot of law firms that used to do it, and there aren't as many now. Even like the bigger ones there, uh, yeah, it's it's not something that a lot of you know firms focus on. So that could technically make it a little bit more competitive because there just aren't the, the numbers aren't there. So I actually ended up working at Sony Music after law school. So I did told it something totally different um, which was a blast. I absolutely loved it. Uh, but I still, I knew I still wanted to do publishing. I did a little stint in, uh, financial services and I just knew uh, doing IP law, but knew that really wasn't for me. And then what had happened is people started contacting me, um, through my wife's network, through my network, um, knowing that I did, uh, publishing, uh, uh, excuse me, that I practiced publishing law or I always was interested at that, at that time. And then, uh, one thing led to another and, you know, I just, I, I, I made a go for it. And I, here I am, you know, a couple years later, my own practice and my own agency. Mm-hmm.
0: So, Jen, if you want to go into your journey and the competitiveness of the industry, and then I want to get back to one of the other questions there as well.
1: Sure. Um, I'll try to give the abridged version because my path to publishing literally looked like this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I went to college as an art major. I studied art, actually, and my drawing professor gave me a C plus. So I was like, yeah, I'm out of here. <laughs> Became an English major. I took I was lucky enough to take some classes with the general counsels at the uh, at WashU at the time. And that's when I was first exposed to copyright law and intellectual property. I got really into it. Um, We had to do a hypothetical case on fair use and I just loved it so much. (laughs) And I've always been a writer, actually, um, more on the newspaper side. I was managing editor of our paper. At one point, they are like, do you want to be editor-in-chief? And I was like, I don't know. Like, um, But I basically decided to go to law school. I mean, it was honestly on a whim. And I always tell people, like, if you're going to go into six figures of debt, really make sure that this is what you want to do. Um, even to get into law school, it's very, very competitive. I mean, when I went to a pretty great law school. um it's not Harvard, you know, but I think something like two thousand people applied for, at the time two thousand people applied for a class of less than three hundred. So it is really competitive to even get your foot in the door. And then after that, you have to take the bar exam and not everyone passes the bar exam on their first try. So that's another hurdle. So I think there's a lot of steps that you need to go through to become a publishing attorney. So um, it is very competitive to sort of get your foot in the door. I was lucky enough that after law school, I a couple of years after I ended up being of counsel for the New Press, which is a not-for-profit publisher. And at the same time, that's when I started talking to agents. I actually didn't know that this was a career path. I never read the acknowledgement section of any book. I'm like, oh, that's like the Oscar speech for the authors. No one cares. (laughs) But um, that's where they thank their agents. And I was lucky enough to get in touch with an alumni from my law school who had started his own agency. So I was literally doing two internships at the same time to get my foot into publishing. Um, But yeah, basically publishing law became became something that I ended up doing because people knew I had a legal background. They asked me for help. So that's how I came into it.
0: And then real quick, Joe, are you a writer as well? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I
2: dabble with, you know, fiction, uh, nonfiction writing various articles and blogs. Um, so I think that also helps in terms of if you're looking for an agent. If there's someone who at least actively tries to write, whether it's, you know, a short story or whatever it may be, they'll at least have the creative juices flowing where you can run things back and forth, where it's not just, just segmented, that they're just here to, you know, send your work to editors and I just think that they'll get a better feel of what, you know, what, what your work is about. Um, I I think that's just an added bonus to have, you know, and I imagine most, I would bet 99% of agents have at least either written something or, or, or have attempted to. (laughs)
0: All right. So next question, this is another three-part question. I'm going to do one part at a time. So Joe, we'll start with you again. Is it plausible to be in negotiations with several publishing houses at once? Um,
2: it all depends. You can be. So It's, it's uh, if you have an auction, I guess that's that, that's when it would, would happen. But technically speaking, at least from what the situations I've been in, when it's gotten to the contract stage, generally speaking, it's sort of like an implicit rule that you're going to go with that publisher. But it doesn't mean that if something doesn't come along that you can say, hey… I'm gonna be in. So what, what usually happens is that if an offer comes in, it's really before negotiations. I was in Jen, correct me if I'm wrong here, but that's that that's been my experience where publisher A offers you something and then you go out to all the other publishers and say, we have an offer, and then they come back, and then that could potentially be an auction. That's where you uh, uh, negotiate with multiple publishers. But if you're if you're already at that stage, it's I I I found that it's very rare where someone f- somehow comes in and says, I'll give you a better offer. I'm sure it's happened, but uh, in, in my experience
1: that, that that hasn't been the case.
0: Do you have anything to add to that before I move on to the second question? Um,
1: yeah, no, I think Joe pretty much covered it, but uh, typically, you know, the best case scenario is you get multiple offers from multiple publishers. And at that time, that's when you decide whether or not you're going to hold an auction, um, you know, and negotiate the deal memo and the deal points then. Like,
2: I just had
0: an auction. So, yeah. Yeah. The second part to this question, Jen, we'll start with you on this one. Could you touch on defamation laws with nonfiction books?
1: Yeah. So defamation is um, an area of law that is pretty complicated, but basically it um, protects anyone from being written about in a false Manner and and you know it has to be injurious to the person's reputation. So there has to be real harm. Um, and there's different there's different standards for private versus uh, public figures. So for public figures, you actually have to prove actual malice. It's a little bit higher standard. Um, so yeah, it's really really important for nonfiction, especially if you're writing memoir, to make sure somebody who understands defamation law sort of vets your manuscript or at least the problematic parts of your manuscript. Um, I always tell people, like, if it's true, then don't worry about it. Truth is a defense, you know, and of of course, the writers are just like, well, I said really horrible things about this person. Are they going to come after me? Like, is it true? (laughs) So, you know, and, uh, you know, there's some wiggle room there. What is truth? Right. I mean, we get into all these like sort of philosophical debates, but basically it's what you can prove in a courtroom. Right. So (sighs) it's definitely something to think about. And I think Joe has done a lot of um, defamation review for his manuscripts as well. And I, I, my list is actually primarily nonfiction. So I do run into that issue a lot. Um, mm. And even if you're just like quoting somebody else's work, you need permission. So I think it's really, really important to understand sort of the the contours of it all.
0: And Joe, what, do you have anything to add to that? Sure. Yeah. So like Jen said,
2: I've done several of them and you look at, you know, defamation, if you're doing a pre-publication review, you look to see if uh, they're violating copyright law, sometimes even trademark law, believe it or not. Um, It's rare, uh, but first amendment law as well in terms of defamation. So yeah, defamation is just, it's false statement of fact. And, you know, you want to make sure that like, like Jen had said, you know, if it's true, it's okay, you know, that that's generally the defense, but even to say, it's my opinion, that's the one thing that you have to out for because if you say you know you know you know just using you know my name you know Joe's an alcoholic compared to I think Joe is an alcoholic that could be just as defamatory so there's nuance to it so and and the fact that it's state based too it's not federally based just like copyright so every state has its own version of this uh, so you have to uh, you would have to see if, you know, what state would apply, whether it be the state that you're in, whether it be the state of that the publisher is in, you know, depending on, you know, where, where, where your book is published. But generally speaking, uh, you're looking for that. And then the thing that's also related with Jen had said is that the right of privacy. So that's a little different where even if you say something that isn't defamatory, you could still get sued for right of privacy. You know, an example being uh, you said something that affects someone's livelihood. Uh, you said a fact that uh, was not supposed to become public. supposed to be left private. For example, um, oh, that really gets into you know it's sort of like fact finding um, uh, uh, when it when it when it gets into uh, court. Uh, so those are just two examples. So just I always say that just because something isn't defamatory, you're not technically off the hook yet. And then you also have to look at um, right of a publicity. I've had I just had to do this um, as well, where um, I had a client who wanted to write a novel and the main characters were uh, uh, celebrities. So, well, you know, there's all these different right of publicity laws that you're going to have to, you know, uh, you're going to be entangled with. So that's the thing that you'd have to um, think about as well. So I know it's a lot, there's so many things that, you know, are sort of intertwined, but that's, that's publishing law for you. It's all the, all the laws that are you know, creative in nature. Um, that's what you're going to be wrestling
0: with. There there are so many good questions coming in here in the Q&A, so I'm trying to get to as many of them as we can. Uh, Let's say, uh, so there's another one that's kind of a two-part, that two people have asked this question. So, Jan, we'll start with you on this one. How does a publishing attorney make money, and what are your costs for negotiation help with publishers?
1: Um, So it depends on the attorney and their experience. Um, Both Joe and I typically charge in the range of $300 an hour, so it's not cheap. Um, but we're also fairly efficient. We try to get things done fairly quickly. So it can be hourly. Um, Some attorneys are open to doing flat fees depending on the project. So um, Joe and I are actually in the process of forming a law firm. So hopefully that'll be launching next month. But basically, uh, I think you can pretty much find a publishing attorney to to represent you on these issues uh, within your budget. Again, it's not cheap, but I think it's a worthwhile investment.
0: anything to add to that
2: yeah uh, so i would just just in terms of just to give people a general sense of like what attorneys charge and what's cheap versus versus expensive. so like for jen and i you know like a 300 even though that may seem like a lot it it really isn't like uh compared to like a big law firm where you're having thousands of attorneys they may charge a thousand an hour 1500 an hour depending on who you're talking to so uh depending on where you are if you're in the bigger cities new york san francisco um, so yeah, uh, you know, it, it, I think for like, it's such a niche, um, um, uh, position because I think a lot of people, and this goes back to what you're saying, the, the earlier question, I think a lot of attorneys either want to go into music. Like I did initially, um, after law school or movies, uh, there are more positions out there. It's, it pays more. Um, so I just think you, if you're going to be an entertainment attorney, you're more likely going to be in that sphere. And then, you know, with, with publishing, it's just, it's, it's a little different, but at the same time, um, the way technology is going, the way the digital world is going now, it's all becoming intertwined. Uh, like I'm sure Jen has got questions like this, but, um, Working on no diff, you know, authors having to go on TikTok and social media, and you know, there are social media laws that you have to look into. So it's like it's all becoming interrelated. Um, and then what you have to look out for if your author wants to go on YouTube. So even if you are just a publishing attorney, yes, you're going to know about books and that sphere of things, but it's all coming together where you, you really have to know a lot about the digital world to really best represent your client, at least in, in my opinion. Mm-hmm.
0: So next question, and Joe, I think actually one of your recent newsletters addressed this, but I'm going to ask you first on this. Oh, sure. What what can a person do if they're in a contract and they want to get out of it?
2: Sure. So there are a few different things that you can do. So it all depends. First thing you want to do is look at the grant of rights. Make sure you didn't assign anything um, to the uh, uh, to the publisher. If you granted the rights, fantastic. You still own it. If you didn't, that's going to be a problem. Um, then you want to look at, um, and Jen, feel free to add one time, <laughs> uh, the out of print clause, uh, the out of print clause, uh, sometimes will have thresholds where if you're not selling a certain amount of copies or a certain amount of money per, you know, a certain amount of accounting accounting periods, so te- for example, hundred dollars or 500 copies in two accounting periods, which would basically be a, a year, um, then it'll go out of print. Um, uh, you also want to look at the, the term of the agreement. Sometimes the term will literally be for the life of the copyright, which is uh, uh, your life plus you know seventy years. But a lot of times, even though it seems like you're like, oh my gosh, how am I ever going to get my contracts? <laughs> a lot of times, the contract will have a term, and we'll say this contract is valid for three years, or five years, or seven years, um, and just you know see if there's you know uh, sleeping on you know the other thing you want to look at is see if they're sleeping on their rights. You can. You know, instead of just getting out of the contract, maybe there's a certain right that you want and you could see if you could, um, you know, revert that. Um, and then the other, th- the other thing I always tell clients is outside of terminating the agreement, because once you do that, it's basically you've severed the relationship with the publisher, make sure you want to do this. And, you know, what are you going to do if you, if you, if you want to go to another publisher, you know, make sure, you know, you, you know what you want to do with it. Uh so you know there, there are certain you know concerns that you want to look at. And like, you know, for instance, the other one would be um, you know, if your book isn't getting marketed or publicized enough, well, maybe it's not that you want to get out of the contract, you're just mad that they're not marketing in a certain way. So talk to your publicist, talk to the you know publicist or publicity department. So there, there are certain things that you know you can look into, um, you know, outside of that that may still,
0: you know, keep the relationship going if you are happy with that. Jen, do you have anything to add to that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I always tell clients and and other people that I work with in publishing that, you know, sometimes you are unhappy, but that's not a reason necessarily under the contract to be able to terminate. Um, And it's very lopsided. I mean, there's a there's an imbalance in terms of negotiation power. And typically, the publisher has more power in that sense. Um, But like Joe said, there's different ways you can carve out exceptions, you can try to get a rights reversion for those rights that they're not exploiting or marketing. Um, So there's different ways to do it. And I definitely think that's a good time to sort of loop in a, a publishing attorney to help you with it.
0: And then we have a clarifying question for Jen. Why would an agent negotiate to retain rights for a specific region, for a specific region, such as France? What is retaining rights about?
1: Yeah, so in the foreign space, and I'm not a foreign rights agent, we have a dedicated foreign rights agent at our agency that sells abroad, but basically if she feels in her professional judgment that the book has foreign potential, it's almost always better for the author to retain those rights, mean keep those rights, because then she can sell to all those different territories for more money than would have, um, you would have gotten through the publisher. So a lot of times there's this sort of tug of war between the foreign rights agent, the agency, and the publishing company because nine times out of 10, the publishing company will say, we have our own foreign rights department. We can also sell this. But keep in mind when they're doing that, it's it's a subsidiary right. It's not um, an initial print right. So you only get a percentage of that. Whereas if you have a foreign rights agent negotiating, oftentimes the terms are better. So it really depends. I mean, I think it's the type of situation where, you know, not everything travels and, our foreign rights agents really blunt. (laughs) Like She'll say, this is too American or I don't see this selling abroad because of X, Y, Z. So it's important to have somebody that sort of understands the the lay of the land and and the international market too.
0: Jody, anything to add to that? Yeah, so I I actually
2: have a a specific situation. Uh, So I have uh, a cookbook, just it's the unofficial Disney Parks cookbook. It ended up being um, Wall Street Journal and USA Today bestseller. Um, So uh, we... So she's a debut author. So at the negotiation table, you know, it was either world rights or they're going to back out of it. So at that instance, you're like, well, okay, like you know, we we want the and it's a big five. You know, it's, it, it 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 all depends on you know the leverage that they have versus you know what you have. And this goes back to what Jen was saying. If you're at a bigger agency, they may have you know more leverage at that point. So at that instance, you know, like no, we've had a few of those books. Um, you know, uh, they're getting translated. I believe to you know Italian, Spanish, and so I, I I forget the other one, but that's just an instance of the publisher doing that. Um, and there, there would be better terms if the, the foreign rights agent would, um, uh, would look at it. So I guess for your book, you want to determine like, you know, does my, you know, look at, does my agent, uh, you know, uh, know enough people in certain territories to, um, you know, negotiate this? Uh, you know, what do I want out of this book? Do I just, is it, is if it's because I've had books where it's literally just too, like Jen said, it's too American. Like, just not going to publish anywhere else. So I tell them like, Hey, you know, like, we can try for it, but you know, I, I don't think it's going to be as successful. So I, sometimes you just have to you know, tell your clients, like, you know, you just have to be blunt with them. Um, but, you know, everything is fact. I, I hate saying that. Cause it's like, it depends. It's like the classic lawyer answer, but it really does. It depends on your book and what you want out of it. And, Uh, you know, what your agent can, or, you know, attorney for that matter, uh, you know, if he knows people in the industry, he or she knows people in the industry and what they can do.
0: So I'm going to do a two-part question here. Uh, Joe, we'll start with you. Uh, Who or how do you get permission uh, to use song lyrics, uh, quoting other people's work in your work? And then also, if you could touch on the use of brand names in fiction, if you're allowed to do that.
2: Yes, sure. So the song lyrics and the text. So generally speaking, the publisher should have uh, a form that you could use. So, how well, I'll just go back and uh, here's how you get the permission. So, song lyrics, um, and I say this just because I used to work at Sony Music. Uh, music publishers are very, very litigious. Uh, for one example, there was a, a video of a baby dancing to a, a song by Prince. It ended up going to federal court, and I believe through the Second Circuit or the Ninth Circuit. Uh, but you would think my baby's dancing to Prince, like, who cares? Uh, but they have things and I'm sure people have come across it where, you know, they have takedown notices. Uh, so, uh, you know, on, on YouTube, stop playing my music, even, you know, even if you're not the one playing it, maybe it's somewhere in the background. Um, so I, I say that as a caveat, um, I just say that they're incredibly litigious. So how you get the, uh, permission from song, which you go to the music publisher and they'll want to know how you're using the song, uh, how you're using the lyrics, how many, uh, lyrics you're using, what's your, uh, uh, print number, how many languages is it going to be in um how you know what how many um formats ebook audio hardcover paperback etc cetera, etc cetera. so the more you answer yes to all of those the more your fee is going to well but it also depends on the lyrics that you're using if it's like you know the beatles or bob dylan i can imagine they have a very very hefty fee so for that i say to, to um, authors just fictionalize your just make up your uh, lyrics um uh, and then there's also fair use where you could um, on the pens if you're writing a novel. Uh, if you're just setting a scene, that's likely not going to work. But if you're analyzing your lyrics, if you're writing a book about say like Bob Dylan uh, and his lyrics and you know, what they mean to Americana, you're going to be an a- analyzer. So it may fall, fall under fair use. So text sort of uh, text is um, sort of, it, it's different, but it's similar. It's, different in that you're not going to a music publisher you're gonna to have to go to the copyright owner um uh, uh, i guess for song lyrics the music publisher is the copyright owner i don't want to um uh, mistake that so you're gonna to have to go to the copyright owner but it's usually a contract rather than for song lyrics you're like writing an email or um you know a a, a letter that, uh so but for text it's a um it's 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 a contract that you're gonna to go to and then the, what was the last um part of the question of oh, brand names right yes so with brand names, it's very interesting. So it's, that goes more into trademark law, uh, with trademark infringement, trademark tarnishment. So for the bigger brands, you want to make sure not to say that, like you know, your main character was killed by eating a you know uh, hamburger at you know, Burger King. Um, uh, anything that's defective, that's dangerous, that could potentially that because that can potentially be trade libel in a sense. Um, Uh, so you want to be careful of that, but can you use brand names? The answer is yes. Can you say your character wears Nike sneakers? Of course you can. Uh, you just want to make sure that you're not saying anything that that could be associated, uh, that it speaks badly of the, of the company. That's really what they're, they're out for. They want to make sure that nothing is out there that people think, oh, wait a minute if this person, you know, if I do X, Y, or Z, you know, they're going to think my product is dangerous. Or defective, and the example that's actually outside of publishing—I haven't seen the show, but um, the crockpot in *This Is Us*, I guess. Uh, uh, I guess it, it uh, burned down the house, and there's a whole uh, discussion about that uh, as to you know whether you can you know do that. And how is that legal? Blah blah blah. So uh, it's
0: just another example, um, more visual example, I guess. Yeah, do you have anything to add to that?
1: Yeah, I think Joe pretty much covered it, but anytime you're quoting somebody else's work, like the best practice is always to get permission, whether it's a lyric, whether it's a poem, and it's, it doesn't matter how little you take it, you know, sometimes they have an argument under fair use, that's de minimis. Um, and we don't have time to get into the, the fair use defense, but basically, always ask for permission. I mean, if you were the writer and you were being quoted, wouldn't you want somebody to ask you as well. So I think that's the best practice.
0: So next question, a couple people have asked this actually, and it circles back into the defamation uh, discussion that we had. Can you write about a person and not use their name, just their actions and nonfiction? Where is the line there? So Jen, let's start with you on this.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's definitely one way to sort of protect yourself. Another way is to make like a a composite characters. That's another way you could protect yourself. Um, But if it's clear from the actions, like if if it's clear who that person is, it's identifiable, then that not having the person's name attached to it might not actually afford you enough protection. So it really, like Joe says, it depends. It's on a case by case basis. Um, but I always advise people, like think about composite characters. Um, sometimes that can work.
0: Joe, you have anything to add to that?
2: Oh yeah. Jen, Jen basically, you know, covered it. You just want to make sure that somebody reads and you can't say that's me <laughs> because that's when uh, you know, you, you, you may be in trouble. So you just want to do whatever you can with changing the names, changing the characteristics uh, changing behaviors, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so that's, uh, definitely one way you can do it.
0: So let's get one more question in here, Joe, I'll start with you. Do you recommend that new authors hire a publishing attorney to review their agent or to review their agent contract? Uh, and then a follow-up is, uh, like, would you rather use an in-house attorney or, or hire somebody yourself? What do you, what would huh. you recommend there?
2: Sure. So uh, I would recommend, I always tell my uh, uh, prospective clients, please hire an attorney. And this is actually what goes back to what Jen was saying, but hire somebody who's a publishing attorney rather than, you know, somebody who's a personal injury attorney. So yes, I would definitely hire that. And what, what works for Jen and I, and the fact that we're uh, attorneys and agents is that we know what the agents are going to uh, uh, want in their agreements. So uh, not to, you know, uh, have a personal plug for both of us, but yeah, that's, uh, that'd be one advantage to having us represent you. So yes, I would definitely have somebody take a look at it because, you know, it it all depends on what's in the agreement. They may like for me, for my contracts, I just include the, that book that you're working on. Some agents will be like, I'm, you know, your agent until, you know, uh, uh, you know, the, the end of the world. So, um, it, it all depends on what you want uh, and how much you trust this agent. And sometimes relationships break down. It's just, you know, it, it happens. So that's why I would definitely make sure to have somebody take a look at it. And the, and plus the publishing attorney will know the customs of the industry. If someone's charging like 40% as an agent, that's that's not right. And there are um, other uh, uh, ethics uh, uh, perspectives as well from the agency community that, you know, that person have to know. about. Anyway, it's an exaggerated example, but... Uh, I I hope that
0: answers the question. Definitely. Yeah. Jen, do you have anything to add to that?
1: Um, Basically, I agree with everything that Joe said. I mean, you want to make sure when you get into a relationship with an agent. It is a long-term relationship. At our our agency, we sign an author for their career, so it encompasses anything that they would write in book form. Um, But always always understand that you have the power to terminate the relationship as well, and and really pay attention to those termination provisions because they can be somewhat strict. Um, You might not be able to walk away with your subsidiary rights after the project has sold, for instance, because the publisher retained those rights. So um, it's definitely important to negotiate. negotiate the contract while you still have negotiation power. And that's before you sign the agency agreement.
0: So very last thing is, is somebody asked, uh, what your agency will be called or how people can find you. So, so Jen, let's start with you. How can people find you and what will the agency be called? Yeah, um, the, you yeah, can,
1: <laughs> if you're interested in querying me as an agent, I just reopened the queries. You can just, um, go through, um, my query manager link, which is in my Twitter bio. If you're interested in contacting either one of us for legal services, um, I'll, I'll give my email, um, to Josh, and he can pass it on to, to whoever wants it. But basically, okay. Joe and I are in the process of forming our law firm, um, probably sometime this fall. And the name of our firm, very, very exciting, is Perry Chen Tran PC, because we just couldn't come up with another name. <laughs> um, and typically, lawyers like to use their last name, so I thought it was the sim- we thought it was the simplest solution. But um, yeah, just don't hesitate to get in touch if you have any questions at all. <laughs>
0: Real quick, before you go, Joe, I just want to tell all our listeners, we're going to include links to this in the show notes. So and any of these links uh, that you two want to send me, please do. And Joe, go ahead with how people can find you.
2: Oh, sure. So if you want to query me uh, as an agent, uh, uh, you can uh, go to my website, uh, perryliterary.com. Uh, and I have a little you know contact us um, sheet that you can fill out. You can also email me, jperry at And I know you'll send these you know, like so. And for my law firm right now, before, you know, we, 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 we merge, uh, you can go to josephperrylaw.com.
0: And then my email is jperry at josephperrylaw.com. Awesome. So Jen, Joe, thank you both so much. This was such a fascinating discussion. There are so many questions mm-hmm. we didn't get to. So to anybody who didn't get their question answered, uh, we, again, I'm going to include all the links to the resources. Uh, hopefully you can find your answers. Uh, Jen, Joe, thank you very much for being here today.
1: Thank you so much for having us. It was a pleasure.
0: Yes, thanks so much. It was a blast. Absolutely. So to our listeners, uh, we'll be back next week, same time, same place. We're talking to Ken Liu about his journey. So until then, we'll see you all next time.